Welcome to Stratford Lutheran's Sermon Podcast. I am Pastor Alex, and this is a podcast that each week will deliver a new sermon message. These are taken directly from our ongoing sermon series, and you can find them in on YouTube if you would like to watch them, but these are here for your listening pleasure. And I am so thankful that you have taken this opportunity to hear this particular sermon. And as always, if you have any questions, you can reach out to me. I am on Instagram at quorum.dale.life. You can reach me at Undying Light Ministries as I host that podcast, Undying Light. And I'm a co-host of a Matter of Truth podcast. This is just a means to allow my sermons to uh, be listened to at your convenience as a listener. And again, I just want to say I am very appreciative of you taking this opportunity to listen. Now, here's this week's sermon. lesson for today is taken from Isaiah, the ninth chapter, beginning with the first verse. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the word of the Lord. Our responsive reading is taken from Psalm 27. Please respond as indicated in your bulletin. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise, arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to do more I For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. 
Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. The second lesson is taken from 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, beginning with the 10th verse. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel according to St. Matthew in the fourth chapter. And now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be filled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has been dawned. From that time Jesus began pre to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in all of the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the healing of every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And the great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, and from Jerusalem to Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The Gospel of our Lord. seated. And as we continue this 
new uh, costume, I'd like to invite all the children up front for the uh, children's sermonette. It'd be kind of a, I don't want to say, uh, it would just be kind of a bland question, I guess, if I were to ask, how many of you have a smartphone in your possession? I'd probably say most of the people in here. And, and even if it's not a smartphone, it's a phone that at least has got a screen on it that would tell you who's calling you, right? So even on those really, really basic flip phones or those ones that nobody, that none of the young folk want to deal with. It'll still tell you who's calling you, right? And it's easy for us now in this time period to be able to screen our phone calls. Before, you would have to wait for the answering machine to pick up before you could hear who it was. And if it was somebody you really needed to talk to, you'd pick it up real quick. And you'd always have that excuse, oh, I was in the other room and I was rushing to get here and I just almost missed you. But I thought about just kind of the caller ID concept because... It allows us to really, really dig into who do we really want to talk to. If the pastor calls you, 
You uh, going to pick up that phone pretty quick, or are you going to let it go to voicemail and see what he wants? <laughs> if your doctor calls you, probably would be a call that you want to take. Interesting now that as we look at technology and we see how you know, everything is moving forward, it, it is helpful and, and is also still kind of burdensome. Because I would venture to say many of you probably experience spam calls. I get probably four or five of them a day. All these calls, and they're always talking about how I missed something in Medicare or the IRS is going to come and knock at my door. and you know, All these crazy stuff. And there's scams galore out in the world of just people going after those who have no, have no connection to them. And so as you are able to look at your phone and you see that call come in, and you're like, yep, not going to answer that one. I'll just let it go to voicemail. You have that power. It's easy to screen the calls. It's easy to just kind of push them aside and say, I'll get to that later, or I don't really want to talk to that person today, or maybe, maybe not tomorrow even. I'll, I'll deal with them later in the week. But those are also calls out there that we look forward to. If our grandkids or kids are calling us or our brothers and sisters are, are calling us, we, we enjoy those. In fact, it was interesting. Graceland has been kind of on a weird kick lately where she has to talk to Grandma Robin at least every day. And if she can't talk to Grandma Robin, then she's going to be, she'll tell Janae, I need to talk to Grandma Lola, which is Robin's mom, so great Grandma Lola. And she's so persistent. And she, she had the phone the other night for 45 minutes, what about 45 minutes, and just talked. Like my, it's just, it's so crazy. But I could see how somebody like Lola had wanted a call like this, to be able to talk to her great-grandchildren. As well as just as many calls that we often like to avoid, there are many that we do like to pick up. And I find that this particular passage, and I really want to focus not on the entire scope of it because we just don't have that time, but I really want to focus on the center part of the text, and that is where Jesus is walking along the shoreline and he calls his disciples. See, this is in this ordinary manner that Jesus is going out and calling these people. And it's really one of those extremely unexpected times. These individuals in the boat, who we have come to know as James, John, and then Peter and Andrew, they don't know what they are getting themselves into. They had even no idea that they needed to hear what Jesus had to tell them. But we begin this ministry of Christ with the very powerful words. Before we even get to the boats, we begin his ministry and he is proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, what he says is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is a very statement that is echoed throughout the church age. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is now. Jesus Christ has come, the promised Messiah has entered the world, and he is here. In Christ, we have the visible display of the kingdom of heaven, walking in the flesh. Now, I think this is quite a beautiful and intricate topic to dwell upon, and I would love to spend all of the time talking about it, but I find I was being kind of drifted towards this next portion. We've got plenty of time together in the coming years, so I'm sure we will revisit this text again. But I really want to focus solely today on this picture 
of Jesus walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. So he sees off into the distance, and again, they could have been 20 feet out off the shore. They could have been 100 yards. doesn't matter. But Jesus sees these two brothers, Simon, who we will now know as Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And Jesus proceeds to make such a radical statement to them, one to which I will get to in a moment. But I want to sit and I want to walk us through this scene and hopefully bring in some context. If we were to understand Peter and Andrew in this mindset that of the first century Israelite, that might help us to really understand kind of the greater scope of the next three years that we will see these two. It was not uncommon that in the first century and earlier, going all the way back to the time of Moses, that the Israelite male children would be instructed and incredibly pushed to memorize the Torah. And not just the Torah, but many books in the Old Testament. The way the Pharisees had kind of constructed the education was that the young male children would come and they would all have to be taught the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. This is also called uh, the books of law or the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, whatever name you want to give it. But they would have to learn and memorize all five of these books. These children would spend hours upon hours upon hours studying and learning and memorizing them. And I want to bring this up because this is something that Peter and Andrew, even though they had been fishermen, had probably partook in to some degree. Because what they would do is they would start to weed out those who couldn't memorize to those who could. And those who could memorize, then they would move on essentially to the next level. And then they would be taught to uh, remember the Psalms, and you'd have to learn the wisdom books and all the prophets. And there were only a few that would actually be selected to be able to memorize or have a majority of the Old Testament memorized. So Peter and Andrew have at least some understanding of the Old Testament. They had knew something about the Torah. And even if they didn't have it fully memorized, I would venture to say that they would probably attend temple as often as possible, and they would hear the law preached and the prophets preached. And they had not been unfamiliar with what the promised Messiah would look like, how he would come into this world, what are some of the miracles that he would be doing, all of these things that were professed through the Old Testament. But I'm always curious, because I, I, I don't know anybody yet, and I'm curious if anybody in here has the, old te- has the Torah, just, just the Torah, the first five books memorized. Anybody? I don't, just to be honest. I don't have any of those memorized. Anybody got a single book memorized? Genesis? Maybe Exodus? No. It's a monumental task, if I do say so myself, to think about having just... Just a few of these front books. If I just open my Bible and I go to, there's Joshua, end of Deuteronomy. If I just say this, this is what you have to memorize. In my Bible, that's 327 pages. I have trouble memorizing a paragraph. But this is the scene of the early Israelite nation. These are the individuals who would then go on to become the Pharisees and the scribes and 
And then some of the more finer pieces would become like Sadducees and other you know, specific sects of the Israelite priesthood. But these individuals, these young boys who would start at a very young age, around two or three years old, and they would start to be taught the Torah. Now, I, I have mentioned it before. Grayson was able to have the Lord's Prayer memorized by the age of three, but I certainly couldn't expect her or even Isaiah to have any sort of the Torah memorized by the ages of five, six, and seven, as some of these individuals would. So for the, for the Israelite, for the male Israelite, and especially for those who would then go on to become the Pharisees, they found that they had some sort of righteousness that they had built for themselves wrapped up into their works. So for the Israelite, memorizing scripture was really just another notch on their belt of righteousness. Look at how good I am. I have the law memorized. I I know what God expects. See, they would measure righteousness under the law. And if we haven't picked this up, this theme is obviously much different now that Christ has come onto the scene. We are not to be measuring ourselves under the law or by our works, but we are freely forgiven, not even based upon anything, anything that we've done. Because nobody has done good, as Paul will tell us. Nobody seeks after God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So memorizing, while I would venture, is always a good thing. The Christian is helpful because it lets you to really meditate on the Scripture. And then when you do have it memorized, you can sit back and reflect upon what that text really is doing to you. Memorizing is certainly a good thing, and I would always recommend if you have the mental capacity to, to do that, do that, go for it. But this is not a requirement for anything. See, for the Pharisees, it was a requirement in order to become a religious leader. But in today's world, and from Christ on, he doesn't expect anybody to have anything memorized in order to be saved. You don't have to have... A, you know, the five steps to doing this or that. You don't have to have anything in the scriptures memorized. All you have to know is that Jesus Christ died for you and he rose from the grave to forgive you of your sin. If you make that verbal proclamation, you are saved. But to memorize text, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it's, it's beneficial. I, I will never not say it isn't because it is helpful if you can handle it, if you can do it. Not everybody is a good memorizer. Not everybody has a, a, a photographic memory that they can just look at a page and, and, and put it into their mind. In fact, when I was really a young Christian, I remember going to a men's, seminary, or men's seminar. It was a teaching class, if you would, and they had a preacher that they had brought in. He used to be a, a highway patrol officer for 20 years. He retired, and then he goes into the ministry. But he had a photographic memory, and it was, it was so fascinating to watch him preach because he would sit up there and he would say, like, well, in Romans 1, verse 6, or whatever. I mean, he would do this, this hand movement because he knew right on the page of what his Bible was saying, the verse that he wanted to quote. And it's just fascinating to see how some of those minds work. And he was one who had a majority of the whole Bible memorized. 
fascinating mind, just immensely deep. But this is the beauty of the Christian walk, whether you are somebody who can memorize whole books or somebody who has just a few verses. You all are given the same reward. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, resurrected body. That is truly the fundamental piece. And while I make this notion of memorizing the text, it might not even be the hardest thing a Christian ever has to do. The hardest thing, I think, in the Christian walk is this, is to remember continuously that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, and he holds that promise in his hand for you. That, I think, sometimes is the biggest challenge that we face as Christians, is simply to remember the promises that Christ has given to us, and to hold on to those, to keep those fresh in our ears every Sunday, so that way it'll get into our hearts. So as Jesus comes along the shoreline, he calls out to these two brothers. He says, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Now, would they have known in this very moment that this man standing on the shoreline was the prophesied Messiah? I'd venture to say it's pretty unlikely. But as we should note that throughout Jesus' ministry, his disciples would have great moments of intellect where they would make the connection that this man is the Messiah. And then they would backtrack and have some moments where they just couldn't figure out what was going on around them. And it's always that degree. That's the Christian life. Sometimes we are in church and we are so passionately on fire. We, we understand the gospel. We proclaim the gospel. We share it with other people. And then there's times when we don't. There are seasons when we may not even be in church for weeks or months because we just feel depleted. And that's common for the life of a Christian to kind of have these ebbs and flows. But in all of it, it is still the promises of Christ that keeps you, that keeps bringing you back into the fold. So they may not have known or recognized who Jesus was on the shoreline, but all they hear is, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It doesn't say that Andrew and, and Simon or Peter jump into the water and swim up. It just says that they immediately left their boat. So they could have been on the shoreline or fairly close and they had docked the boat, got off and left. James and John, interestingly enough, just leave their nets and their father in the boat and go and follow Jesus. But the text, I find, is to be quite interesting because it's not just you know, a prolonged statement. It doesn't say that they you know, brought their boats up to the shore, docked them, tied them up nice and neat, and then got out the boat, changed their clothes, got a shower, ate some dinner, and then decided to follow Jesus. What the text tells you is that it was immediately, which then I would venture to say they probably jumped into the water even when they had nets already down there trying to catch fish. They left that all to go. They had left their boats to float in the Sea of Galilee. They jump in the water. They swim to the shore because this man had called them to him. Seems like a bit of a peculiar statement to make to somebody you've never met. I know Drew and I have gone fishing before. I don't know if Drew could stand on the shoreline and yell out to the people on the boat, hey, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, having never met these people, it would be kind of an interesting statement to make. 
But yet, this is what Jesus does. As he comes and he interrupts our lives. See, maybe an hour before this incident happens, Peter and Andrew and James and Zebedee in their own boats are fishing and they're just, you know, they're talking through life. Oh, you know, we're going to hopefully get a few more fish this week so we can make a few extra dollars. Sadly, fishermen in this culture were not well off. They were, in fact, on the lower spectrum of the society. There was only just a few careers kind of below them before they were kind of looked as outcasts. So fishermen were not very well respected. But it was a profession that many actually undertook. It was easy, relatively easy to do. You'd make sure your nets were always in good shape. You had a good working boat that could float. And you throw your nets over the side and hope to, to catch some fish. This is just an interesting statement. What in the world is Jesus talking about? And interestingly enough, it is, the text tells us they immediately follow him, but how confused would Andrew and Peter and James and John have been over this statement? How just baffled it must be to hear these words. In my home office, I have this neat little statue that I've had for a number of years, and it's a guy fishing, pulling a fish out of a brook. And on it, it's got Mark 1.17 on there, which is the same verse that Matthew records, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This has always been one of my favorite parts of my library because it is a verse to me that just echoes to the Christian life. There's so many interconnected pieces between this verse and the rest of Scripture. And it stands out, this very statement, as essentially contradictory to the world. Now, for anybody who's a fisherman, this truth might be evident. How often do you go and sit on a boat? Do you have, or on the shore if you don't have a boat, but you got your line in the water, and you get absolutely no bites. You sit there for hours. Nothing, not a nibble. Your pole doesn't even flinch. The wind doesn't even move it. You get nothing. You've done everything right, though. You've gotten the most expensive rods and reels. You've got the best lures. You've got the best wine for the water conditions. And you're fishing at the right time of the day. But the fish evade you. Now, I love fishing. And I would also sometimes just call it simply waiting. Because you're waiting for something to happen. Because chances are you may not even catch anything. And of course, this old adage that I always come back to is, a bad day of fishing is still better than any day in the office. Because you get to sit out in nature and you get to see God's beauty and glory all around you. But see, let's actually just quickly unpack what Jesus is really trying to get at here. He doesn't actually talk about catching actual fish. But he's telling them that they will be fishers of men. <clears throat> so how can one be a fisher of men? Well, <clears throat> as we know, the apostles, after the ascension of Christ, they go into the world and they proclaim the gospel. And they're calling people to him, to Christ. They are out fishing for men. See, with fishing, anything could happen within hours. It could take even a weekend and you don't catch anything. And see, this is an, an interesting connection because it goes the same with sharing the gospel. 
I would venture to say many of you have spent hours, years, proclaiming the gospel to your family and friends, years pouring over your kids and seeing little results. See, Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to teach you how to go to the store and buy followers. See, this isn't some sort of instantaneous transaction. This is one that will take time. This is one that could, in some cases, take years to fulfill. Paul makes this connection in, in 1 Corinthians in the third chapter. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave growth. Paul comes along, he plants the seed of the gospel. If you remember the parable of the sower of the seed, Paul plants, or we can also say preaches, the gospel to unpreached people. He doesn't stay to cultivate it. He doesn't stay and build a church there. In some cases he did, in many cases he did, but he doesn't stay and pastor because he goes on to the next town. But he plants the seeds. And now Apollos comes along and he continues to preach and teach. He's watering in both cases, neither man is actually responsible for any growth. They're not responsible for anything. All they did was share the gospel and kept sharing it over and over and over again. See, it is God who is responsible for the growth. So as we get back to this text, these two apostles called by Christ to go into the world and to change the world. The same call that echoes through the church age to go into the world, make disciples by baptizing and teaching. So as you go about your daily routines, as you visit and are visited by family, remember the similarities of the fishing for men and the fishing for fish. As we go about doing the planting as Paul references, we pray that God would provide growth. He provides either you to come along and water it or somebody else to water. And we pray that these individuals would grow in their faith. That is the only way somebody can come back to faith or somebody can be given faith as anew is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the prophet Isaiah states this, so shall my word that so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth it shall not return to me empty. Isaiah is referring to God's word. This is the good news, the gospel. It never returns to God empty. It does exactly what God had intended it to do. It will accomplish exactly what he has purposed it to do. It all rests in God's hands. See, that's the beauty. While the Pharisees would go out and look for the, the, the smartest children, those who had shown the best potential, and then neglect the rest of society, they only wanted the finest pieces, the best looking, the smartest and brilliant children. God comes to the everyday, average, ordinary folk. And he says, you are just like everybody else. You're all equal. Paul will go on to make those illustrations in his epistles. That we are all created in the likeness of God. As we go back to the creation account. We are all made equal before God. Man and woman. Jew and Greek. But the interesting thing is it's not about the work that you do. It's helpful because you are the images of Christ as we looked at earlier in John. You are the light of the world. But you have no power to draw faith to people. You just simply plant the seed. 
You just start that person walking along in the, the path and you just throw it out and the wind takes it as it will. And that is the Holy Spirit. It all rests in God's hands, his promise, his working of faith. And all we are is mere vessels to follow along. We merely share this good news that Christ has come into this world, that his kingdom is now at hand. And it is only through faith in him that one is forgiven of their sin. This is the good news that Jesus instilled to the apostles. This is the good news we continue to preach in the church today. And this is the good news that may show up in unexpected places. It may come from a source we never expected it. But a question we can always ask ourselves is, is this a call we are willing to ignore? Is this a call that we are willing to silence our phones on and say, I'll deal with it later? This call is exceptionally important. Far more important than anything in our lives. Because this call deals with the next life, eternal life. So this call is one that we can't afford to avoid. And it is a call that we should be also taking and forwarding on to others. It is the one that continuously draws us back into the fold of Christ. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to another sermon brought to you by Pastor Alex at Stratford Evangelical Lutheran Church. If you have enjoyed these sermons and you are interested in helping support our church, you can do so by going to stratfordlutheran.org and clicking on the About Us tab. Then you will see a little link that says Support Our Church. You can click on that. and It'll bring you to a page called Vanco. And you can sign in, create an account, and you can either do a one-time gift or you can set up recurring gifts. It's easy, it's convenient, it's secure. It's what we've been using for the last four years in our church for our online giving platform. So we would ask you to prayerfully consider helping support our church as we continue to provide you godly-centered content in the years to come. Thank you once again for listening, and God bless.